Hello! And welcome to Pop Tarts! Beep, 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 beep. I'm Emily Rems. I'm Callie Watts. We are both editors at Bust Magazine in New York City. We're both pop culture junkies. We both love talking to each other about pop culture. We love talking to you about pop culture. And today we are going to be talking about Lady Bird, a new comedy slash drama coming of age masterpiece written and directed by Greta Gerwig. Uh, it stars Saoirse Ronan and uh, Laurie Metcalf as mother and daughter hashing it out in Sacramento during the turbulent senior year of high school. And uh, it was released earlier in November, has released massive critical acclaim, particularly for Saoirse Ronan and Laurie Metcalf, and also for Greta Gerwig's direction and screenplay. Here to talk to us all about Lady Bird is feminist film critic extraordinaire, Jenny Miller. Hello, Jenny. Hey. Jenny has covered film and entertainment topics for Vanity Fair, Cosmopolitan, Vulture, Playboy, GQ, Nylon, and of course, for Bust Magazine, where she's also our sex files editor. (laughs) And uh, Jenny's also here because she wrote Bust's cover story on Greta Gerwig and Lady Bird, which is on stands now. Go get it. It's so pretty. And Jenny did such a great job. It was such a good article. And Jenny also happens to be one of my favorite humans on this entire planet. So I'm very happy to have her here in the studio with us. I'm super happy to be here. Here for this. I say what I want. It's my show. Super hot. (laughs) It was like time to shit or get off the pot. Somebody came over and tickled me for a documentary for $100. Like they're not trash, but they, a few of them are trash. Jenny. Yes. Let's get into it. You texted me immediately after you saw Lady Bird and said it was the a perfect coming-of-age movie. What made you say that? What made you feel those feels? Um, gosh, I feel like it was so long ago that Lady Bird has just become part of my marrow. Um, <laughs> like, it's just the writing, the direction, Saoirse Ronan's performance. I was in love as soon as she threw herself out of a car, a moving car, because she was having a tantrum. That's not a spoiler, because she's wearing a fucking cast in most of the movie. Mom! You should just go to City College. You know, with your work ethic, just go to City College and then to jail, and then back to City College, and then maybe you'd learn to pull yourself up and not expect everybody to do everything! As soon as I saw that, I knew this movie is going to get to the heart of how insane it feels to be a teenage girl. And not only that, but how difficult parents have it when they relate to their kids or don't relate. You can really see that in the struggle with Laurie Metcalf and Tracy Letts' performances. Um, I I just, it's such... A perfect movie and I think there are very few that capture the essence of coming of age for girls like this um you know you can count them on one hand maybe diary of a teenage girl uh I don't know then we have a million boyhoods which is like mm-hmm. you know great let's just jack off some more you know I just was so passionate about this and also as a longtime fan of Greta Gerwig um I thought I think her writing is so smart and so warm and humane. And I was so excited to see her come into her own as a director. And it was just, it was just perfect. I loved it too. I really loved it too. I loved in the interview where you were talking about how it's a mo- one of the rare movies where they're not talking, the message isn't, what's she going to end up with the guy? And also there was an interesting quote where she was saying, um, you never get to see what happens to women mm-hmm. when men aren't around because men never see what happens to women when they're not around. She had so many amazing things to say that it was kind of heart rending to cut any of it out. But um, 
sort of piggybacking from that, one of the many um, filmmakers she mentioned was Chantal Ackerman and Jean Delman and this sort of portrait of a woman that, and what she's doing when no one's alone and her fascination with this whole, that is Greta Gerwig's fascination with this whole other world that we have that's private, that's internal. And I think like, that is what makes her own filmmaking so strong as like talking to her. She is completely immersed in film, but she's also um, like she can talk about anything. Like we talked about, uh, you know, Sam Shepard. We talked about, oh, my gosh, like she's just so she brings all of that to the table and it's really exciting to talk with her. Full disclosure, I've never seen a Greta Gerwig movie. Besides this one that she wrote and directed, I've never seen her in any. I really recommend Frances Ha. Everybody apparently does, but it's uh, really good. (laughs) (laughs) There's a scene in Frances Ha where she dances through the streets to Modern Love, which is a reference to this random French movie that I saw one night called Mauvais Song. And um, it's like the epitome of how I want to feel when I fall in love, like this crazy French guy just running through the streets, like kind of punching himself in the (laughs) stomach (laughs) and listening to Modern Love. And she's like, oh my God, I love that guy. I love that filmmaker. And I was like, oh, can we be best friends right now? (laughs) Going back to that quote that you were talking about, Callie, I actually, that quote really resonated with me too. And I wrote it down exactly so we could discuss it. She said in Greta Gerwig, said in Jenny's interview with her. She said, I like writing about women in relation to other women, mothers and daughters, friends, sisters, mentors, employers and employees, because men don't know what women do when they aren't there. These are powerful, complicated, rich relationships. And I feel like that sentiment really came through 100% in Lady Bird. It felt so luxurious to watch all of these rich, fully realized relationships that were funny and poignant and sad and and felt really real how do you feel about the way she achieved this specific aspect of her vision i mean i think that's been her talent from the beginning like the things that she's brought to the scripts that she's co-written with um Noah Baumbach or written herself are these private moments between especially between friends which I love so Greta Gerwig co-wrote Frances Ha she co-wrote Mistress America she co-wrote both of those with Noah Baumbach and so you feel as a screenwriter she's been working up to this for many years Totally. And talking to her about how much she learned, you know, doing quote unquote mumblecore movies or, you know, when she would work with all kinds of directors and cinematographers and just sit and absorb their information. You know, uh, she was very quick to point out that she loves all the directors she's worked with and has learned something from all of them. And um, everyone's been very generous with their knowledge, whether that was cinematography or, you know, in the case of like old mumblecore movies, how to hold a boom mic, in which case you just had to learn how to do everything. Mm -hmm. And you touched on this briefly, but I I feel so curious about what it's like to hang out with her in person since you're the only person in this room who has done it and you've done it more than once right how many times have you interviewed Greta Gerwig um I've interviewed her this was my third time and whether it is real or not she has remembered me both this time and the time previous which I found incredibly charming and I will totally believe that because it makes me feel (laughs) nice you are very memorable thank you um she's delightful I was super super nervous and she was like why are you nervous stop and I was like you're right okay and um we both kept like dropping silverware and it was just she like tried to pay for her half of the brunch I was like come on you know (laughs) She like was she's the kind of person who gets excited about something and like pulls out her phone to show you, Aww. you know, like it it was just it was really fun. The the rapport that I felt like you established in your interview, it really felt like I was listening to two friends 
who both love movies, like bonding over cinema, that that came through. I wonder yeah. if if you have a certain chemistry with her that not all other writers have, because it's not like I don't necessarily feel that way when I read other profiles of her. But there seemed to be sort of like a cool feminist film girl magic between the two of you guys that I thought came through in your story. Thank you. I think she does really great interviews. And I think she's one of those people who, um, you know, she's self-protective. She's not telling you all of her business or whatever. But like she is bringing a lot of herself to it and her enthusiasm and her passion. You mentioned also earlier that that one of the very earliest scenes in the movie is uh, Lady Bird, played by Saoirse Ronan, is in the car with her mother, played by Laurie Metcalf. Laurie Metcalf, by the way, you know that you know her, even if you don't know that you know her. She's Roseanne's (laughs) sister from Roseanne. And she's the best. She's so fucking good. I would actually not be surprised if she got some kind of Golden Globes or or more nomination for yeah. this film because she just did a, a bang-up job. Totally. But um, the one of the opening scenes of the film, the two of them are together in the car, and they're just going at it. <laughs> and at some point, Laurie Metcalf, playing the mother, emotionally crosses the line, and Lady Bird just opens the door of the moving car and hurls herself out <laughs> rather than share space with her mother for even another instant. And I, I definitely think about that scene. It's, I feel like it's going to be resonant to a lot of people for a long time. But I keep thinking about their very complicated relationship, which is really the central love story of this coming-of-age film, is really the love story between the mother and the daughter. Do you think that Lady Bird's mother is a good mother? Or is that even a question that we can ask? Hmm. That never occurred to me. Yeah. I I thought she was trying to do the best she could Mm -hmm. with a lot. I feel like good mother is such a sliding scale. There's what really makes someone a good mother. Like, and also like not saying whether someone is a good mother or bad mother, like maybe they're just a mother and they're doing the best they can. Mm -hmm. I feel like I'm so accustomed to film depictions of mother like either you have like a monstrous mommy dearest mother Mm -hmm. right or you have like a very cute and cuddly like june cleaver style supportive mother and then like that the really cuddly supportive mothers always get killed off to make sure that everybody (laughs) cries but like you don't often get the true experience of like the really complicated difficult mother who's doing the best she can and who is really I feel like I could identify with both sides of the equation in almost every scene well I mean that's the power of her writing and her ability to write rich characters and I also think one thing that really I found very interesting was uh the class issues that are sort of well, they're not lurking. It's, you know, a great deal of Lady Bird's story is her shame about her family and how much money they don't have compared to, like, the rich kids that she wants to hang with. They're very pretty in pink. Yeah. Lady Bird always says that she lives on the wrong side of the tracks, but I always thought that that was like a metaphor. But there are actual train tracks. That kind of is part of Laurie Metcalf's character is, like, just this, this like, blue-collar hustle. Yeah, she's such a working-class hero. Yeah. Laurie Metcalf. Totally. And Tracy Letts is great. Yeah. Another really potent thread in this film was Lady Bird's primal desire to leave Sacramento and move to New York. Mm -hmm. And all of us, like, none of us were born in New York City. And all of us made that journey as well. Like, did this film remind anyone else of, like, making the big leap to New York City and how that felt and how scary slash amazing that was? You never know what it's going to be like to live here till you live here. And then you don't even really know what it's like to live here till you've lived here a long time. Yeah. How long does it take to know that you can live here? That you can or that you are? <laughs> <laughs> I don't know. It's, tell, me, tell me about your journeys to New York City. Um, I grew up in Dallas and I left. 
high school, I graduated and came directly uh, to Sarah Lawrence and was like, all right, New York, yay. But then uh, it was super overwhelming and I was like, what the fuck? <laughs> this is terrible. Winner. Uh, and um, basically was bribed to stay in school by my mom. <laughs> I desperately wanted to go back to Texas. And um, it just sort of became... Like, I was going back and forth for summers and holidays, and eventually I just was like, this is too much of a pain in the ass. I'm going to live in the city and commute and just live here until I graduate. I don't know what's going to happen after that, and I'm still in the same apartment. Yay! You did it! almost 20 years later. uh, And what Lady Bird made me think of was not so much my journey to New York, but, like, the pain of my mother and father leaving me. Mm. with the pain they felt specifically yeah like I felt so bad for putting my parents through that um now like in retrospect I feel terrible that I did that Mm. but it had to be done and ultimately (laughs) it was for it was for the best for everyone and we got you yeah glad your mom bribed you yeah (laughs) what about you Callie Oh, well, when I was in high school, I wanted to work at a magazine, specifically Bus Magazine, and moved to New York. That was way back in the olden days. And then I was in college for like two years. You interviewed me for the internship. Yeah, buddy. Um, So I moved here. It was just supposed to be six months. I loved New York immediately. Um, So then I stayed another six months. And then Bus offered me the job the day before I was going to move. And then I never went anywhere. Yay, you did it. It's like a dream story. (laughs) I moved to New York from Virginia for a theater job, and it was such a nightmarish job. (laughs) Like, I keep thinking about that job with all of, like, the the harassment stuff that's, like, Mm. so predominant in the media right now. I want to make it very clear that I was not sexually harassed in this job. But... The people who were being sexually harassed were definitely getting a lot farther, a lot faster than I was. And I was just being harassed without the sexually part. I was just being emotionally abused constantly. And so I would, I moved to New York for this job and, and I was like, wow, New York really like chews you up and spits you out. I wasn't sure how much, how long I could make it here. And I was at that job for a year and I would lock myself in the bathroom and cry and read bust magazine. And then like, finally I, I got up the courage to quit. And while I was looking for other jobs, I, I got my bust internship and then I never left. I do want to, I mean, it sounds like I had a lovely journey, but there was quite a struggle cause I was interning, you know, I wasn't getting paid. Yeah. And that was for six months. And I worked some crazy fucking <laughs> jobs to pull the hustle off. You know, like somebody came over and tickled me for a documentary for a hundred dollars. Yeah, buddy. For for thirty minutes, which I peed. I went to the bathroom. I peed for fifteen minutes of it just to kill some time. And then I like sold Jello shots and did choreographed dance routines at clubs, which was a crazy hustle. Um, there was some, I did some weird shit. I was in a pyramid scheme selling spa packages in a mall in New Jersey where yeah. everybody would get together in a circle and sing, here comes the boom to motivate them <laughs> to go south. <laughs> I had some, some nutso jobs. Oh, I applied once to kick dudes in the balls, but then I found out that my face would have to be on the website. <laughs> and so I was like, I'm not pulling that shit. It was quite a struggle. I feel like if there ever was a sequel to Lady Bird, it should be that. Yeah. <laughs> it should be her first year in New York doing Craigslist jobs. Oh, and yeah. And then when I decided, because my, my apartment was only for six months, and then I had to get a new place, and then I lived in a church for free and had to be the receptionist. I don't even believe in God, but I got a lot of free suits there nice. for some reason. <laughs> <laughs> it was, and I was shared a bed then with my best friend because we were trying to save money. And then I also worked at a restaurant at the same time. It was a struggle. Wow. <laughs> Pro tip when you first move here, you can't get a job unless you work here. So just say that you worked at a place that recently closed because they can't check the reference. Nice. Pro tip. <laughs> um, one of the most shocking things to me about Lady Bird is that the point of view 
and the filmmaking is so crystal clear and fully realized. It's shocking that it's Greta Gerwig's first feature film. And I wasn't the only person who felt that way. The New York Times said Gerwig is an exceptional, fully formed filmmaker right out of the gate. Why do you think she waited until she was 34 to direct? Jenny, she told you that she's wanted to direct and she was in kindergarten. So what? why now? Well, I mean, like she said, she just had learned all there was to learn that she not all there was to learn ever but if she was going to do it she had the information there was I I think it was just like it was time it was time to fly as it Mm -hmm. were Mm -hmm. um you know I mean she she loves she had nothing but praise for all the directors she'd worked with she loves acting but uh I think it just felt like this was the project she wanted to take on and I think like I, I think it was the right decision. I, I think, like, she's so talented and knows what she wants and is so incredibly literate in cinema and in literature and, like, I I don't know, just everything. She was, like, a sponge. I wish I could remember the name of the cine- cinematographer she was telling me who, like, you know, in between takes, she would, like, sit down and he would give her tips, like, on whatever movie she was working on. You know, I mean, she's just... I I just feel like it was like time to shit or get off the pot. (laughs) (laughs) I'm so glad she shit. And I feel like her shit will will help us for years to come. Uh, When I went to the screening, I went uh, to see Lady Bird in a press screening room. And by the end of the film, I would say, and the mix was about 50-50 women and men. Every woman in the theater was crying and none of the men were. What is it about this film that makes the audience response so gendered? But also, that being said, Callie did not cry. I was Jenny, stone did you cold cry? heart. Oh my god, I cried. I cried so much. I'm a heartless <laughs> person. <laughs> I have no feelings. I mean, for me, the theater is like sort of my safe space to cry. Uh huh. So I cry very easily at the movies, but I definitely cried a lot at this one i'll tell you that and like callie says nobody dies there's just (laughs) there is this is a coming of age story where a young woman with a complicated relationship with her mother comes of age and leaves the nest and depending on people's relationships with that storyline with their own mothers with their own lives like that's gonna push buttons i am surprised that men seemingly don't have those buttons but maybe that was just the 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 screening that i was in well screenings are kind of full of assholes (laughs) well i was there if that's any indication you're not i only want to go to screenings with you guys like screening people at screenings are the worst (laughs) i'm so curious like I was telling my mother about this movie and about how much i loved it and she was like well i'd like to see it but I only go to to the movies with your father and I'm sure he won't see it. And I'm like, well, why? Like I went to see Moonlight and there was like no women in that. Like what? <laughs> so valid. <laughs> like why would a, a man not see it? And also she has a wonderful, complicated relationship with her father. That's really on, on that's worth, uh, thinking about and talking about. I mean, all of these characters are complex. Right. If someone asks me, what is the movie about? And I tell them, I feel like women are much more likely to go see that film than men are. I mean, based on the description, I would never have gone see this movie. (laughs) Not that it was a bad movie, like I said, but it's just not in my, like, Mm -hmm. there's nothing that just about it that would immediately draw me in. Mm Mm-hmm. But I feel like that's not true about other coming-of-age movies like Pretty in Pink or Sixteen Candles, which are also coming-of-age movies like with a female protagonist that everybody went to see. Is it just like a different time? I mean, when I was younger, I think I enjoyed coming-of-age movies more. Also, there's like the kitsch value of a lot of them, you know, mm-hmm. it's, and like, there's just a, a more quirkiness to Pretty in Pink, you know. And they're mm-hmm. they're like, and I stumbled upon them as a child. It wasn't like I would seek them out. Yeah, 
And they were also sort of flatter. They weren't as three-dimensional, and they were, like, easier to digest. Yeah. Exactly. Like, it, when you're talking about Molly Ringwald, John Hughes movies, the re- romantic relationship is the focal point of the narrative, yeah. without question. And it's not like the the men in Lady Bird are trash. Like, they're not trash, but they... A few of them are trash. They are... There's some trash. ...are transitory. <laughs> I know. They, like... Is this just what you get when you, when a woman is allowed to write and direct a more truthful depiction of women's lives and what the coming-of-age experience is, you're going to get a very different kind of love story that is that where the man is not the focal point of the narrative? Or is this just, like, specifically Greta Gerwig, like, upending the genre? Man, I wish there were enough uh, women directors for us to... <laughs> Suss that out. Yeah. <laughs> I mean, maybe if enough women writers and directors get a chance to, like, write all of the coming-of-age stories that we have inside of us, then, like, eventually we can get around to writing, like, the male point of view. But <laughs> for now, we're busy. Well, you know, what I, I was telling people is I feel like with all of this drama that's going on in Hollywood, there's going to be a lot more director opportunities because everybody's getting fired and so now maybe women can crawl to maybe now is going to be where where we get a bunch of women because yeah because you want to put your money towards someone who isn't trash yeah if you're a baby in hollywood right now you've got some options for once it seems very positive i mean it's a very negative time but if you're like want to be an actor or a director now is your time to get in there while they're dropping all these bitches out Overall, it was my feeling that Lady Bird is a lot more than the sum of its parts. It has, like, this special magic to it that you can only really appreciate by watching it and experiencing it. Um, Greta Gerwig told the New York Times that her catchphrase for the look of the film, which I thought was a really important part of that magic that she created, was plain and luscious. Oh, I I like that. And I I get that. You know, have you ever, like gone to a convenience store and there's like high school kids loitering outside and you suddenly feel like you're watching an art film. (laughs) Like I'm not talking about like being gross, like certain senatorial candidates. (laughs) Like I'm just talking about the plain lusciousness of teens being themselves in the wild. Like hanging out in the movie theater parking lot. Like they're suddenly like, they're dripping with magnificent detail, and that was fully on display here. I love that sentence. They're yeah. dripping with magnificent detail. So good. I'm just saying that, like, there's Someone something... remember that for movie dialogue, when, they, <laughs> when these women get their new jobs. Yeah. It's something I feel like nightlife people try and fail at all the time, but that teens just being themselves with each other unsupervised are plain and luscious to the max and I loved that she captured that aesthetic so completely without resorting to any kind of like hacky tropes that I could really see Mm -hmm. and it it was so good and I loved it so much so good (laughs) so yeah go see it if you haven't seen it it's making a nice little sum among the small got like a small just you know release right now but it's making it's It's making money getting a lot of really good press yeah it's gonna do really well i have faith i haven't read a bad review of it have you no i hope she gets a nomination greta gerwig you deserve a nomination and i hope that you listen to this and that you appreciate our appreciation (laughs) (laughs) when we come back i'm gonna ask callie i'm gonna ask jenny what, what you, you watching? watching? And then I'm going to tell them what I'm watching as well. Yeah. This episode of Pop-Tarts was produced in the Listening Booth. Check out this sneak peek of their shows and then head to listeningboothmedia.com to find out more about each one. I'm Terrence Mickey, the creator and host of Memory Motel, a podcast that finds the drama and what we desperately want to remember or would rather forget. In season one, I explored such light topics as the different ways we remember the dead. 
Good afternoon. Thank you for calling the New York Times Classifieds. Christine speaking. I may help you. Hi, my name is Terrence Mickey, and I'm calling to inquire about an obituary. What information were you looking for that I could possibly help you with? Okay, I'm a big procrastinator, but I'm going to die at some point, so I just want to be prepared. And to get to the bottom of Stockholm Syndrome, I returned to the bank robbery where the first person was diagnosed with it. I always felt that I did something wrong. After almost 50 years, I felt, well, I didn't do anything wrong. I did what I had to do. And I'm kind of feeling proud of myself. And I followed a message in a bottle. He starts talking to me about a bottle with a message in it and he says, Turks and Caicos. I'm like, and I'm, you know, I'm real expressive. You can't see me, but like I make a lot of faces. And I look at my cousin and I real quizzically and I go, I don't know what this guy's talking about. So I says, hold on a second. I put the phone down. I'm like, what? What? And I go back on the phone. And I go, okay, excuse me. What's a Turks and Caicos? I had no idea. To see where your memories take me next, please subscribe to Memory Motel wherever you listen to your podcasts. And to share your memories, please reach out to me directly on Twitter at Terrence underscore Mickey or at Memory Motel. For updates on season two, visit our website, memorymotel.audio. And we're back. Hello. And because guests always come first... Jenny Miller, I shall ask you first, what you watching? Oh boy, well, um, I have insomnia, so I've been watching a lot. All right, keep in mind that when I ask you what you're watching, I'm talking about movies, TV, books, podcasts, uh, any kind of media that can get into any of your eye or ear holes. Oh my God. Well, um, I watch a lot of TV Mm-hmm. I watch The Good Place. I watch um, You're the Worst, which I think is brilliant. My I've never watched loves it. that show. I just started watching. So good. I really like it. It's so wrong and good, and the way it portrays mental illness and the struggles therein are super real, and I just, I love it, even though sometimes it's, like, heartbreaking. Um, I watch Outlander because Sam Hewen is a brick shit house and super <laughs> hot. Wow! <laughs> and um, yeah, it's just kind of like ridiculous, and I don't know. Uh, I I love them. And um, what else am I watching? Oh, when I can't sleep, I watch House Hunters International. <laughs> I watch. Um, <laughs> Ink Master's Angels, which is... What is the premise of Ink Master's Angels? I watched <laughs> Ink Master, but not Angels. Okay. So during one season, a particularly badass crew of female tattoo artists decided, even though they weren't all on the same team, they would have each other's backs. No oh, I remember what. that. They had an alliance. They I had an alliance. And, they, and one of them actually won because she's a fantastic tattooer, Ryan Ashley. And, um, she's the one with like the silver hair, right? Right. And then the person, one of the other top three was this totally badass, adorable goth chick named Kelly. Was she the sort of like round plus size one and who, whose clothes I coveted every week? Yes, I want her entire wardrobe. She's oh the God. best. And so she and the other girls, women in this alliance... Uh, now have their own show and they go around to different cities and challenge local tattooers. And first, the tattooers go up against themselves. So for this first round, you're only going to have two hours to show us what you've got. Any style, any subject, and we want you guys to impress us. I'm personally scared shitless. <laughs> <laughs> and then um, eventually whoever wins has to challenge an angel. And they do it in front of like a live audience of like people talking and watching and drinking. And do the regular judges judge these? N- no. The angels judge and then the crowd judges. And then the two people who are losers also have a vote. Oh. And whoever, if you beat an angel, you get to go on Ink Master 10. It's Whoa. nice to make a loser feel important. Yeah. 
and there's, there's a lot of the kids, a lot of trash talking, a lot of bullshit from these competitors. And then, um, like, I'm not gonna let a lady tattoo artist beat me. Oh, no, just in general, just amongst <laughs> themselves. They're just like, oh, whatever, blah, blah. And then they're like, yeah, I learned how to scratch like 10 years ago, whatever. I don't know what I'm doing, but it's, it's really. <laughs> It's really charming, and um, yeah, but it's terrible, like, for the tattoo industry. Is Ladyface still the host? Ladyface? Who's that? <laughs> Dave Navarro, oh. a.k.a. Ladyface. That's so terrible. You shouldn't say that. I say what I want. It's my show. He's had a lot of plastic surgery. Bless his heart. Bless Is his he the heart. host? He's not the host. Is he on it at all? No. There's Are no you sure he's not face. the host and he just didn't get more plastic surgery? <laughs> he's, he's the fifth angel. <laughs> oh, my God. He's not. Cut. You guys are monsters. Sorry. <laughs> um, I am. Oh, I just saw Call Me By Your Name, which made me sob like a child. Um, Is the guy from Ladybird and Call Me? Yes, Timothy Chalamet. And he has this erotic coming of age with Army Hammer, and it is super erotic. It is beautiful and sensual and luscious, and I cried a lot. Similar to one of my other favorite movies of the year, The Shape of Water, in which... You know, the age-old question of whether or not a woman will fuck a fish man is answered. And that's I believe, a question? That's a question. <laughs> and the answer... Whether or not... Well, we know that, that dudes will fuck a mermaid, but would a woman fuck a merman? The answer is does yes. Does he have a dick? Yeah. Yeah, he does. She explains it. Work. It's a whole thing. It's, I reviewed, I reviewed <laughs> it for uh bestiality. Uh... It depends which part of him. <laughs> oh, God. Oh, my God. It's so good. It's one of the best movies of the year. Those two are like, I, I reviewed The Shape of Water for you, Emily. Yes, you reviewed it in Bust Magazine on stands now. On stands. Callie, what you watching? What am I watching? Um, well, I would feel remiss if I didn't bring up that I am trolling the fucking news about all this, everybody who's getting called out. This is, it's an amazing, and it's also terrifying. It's every day. Every day, multiple people. Yes. It's, it's a lot to take in. And I'm having a really interesting, um, this person just texted me earlier. This, all the men are like, what, well, what are we supposed to do? How, how are we supposed to deal with this? Knowing that we're creating this situation or should we, you know, they're looking in themselves and trying to figure out if they are assholes Usually, if you have to look into yourself to figure out if you're an asshole, you're probably an asshole. And I just had this friend post a thing online that was like, I want to check, you know, like, have I ever stepped over a boundary or made anybody feel uncomfortable? Um, You know, I just want to assess myself, you know, like, do some inner work. And it was an insane debate on that thread whether this was beneficial to women or whether he was making the women do the work for him instead of him figuring out when he overstepped boundaries. But if you can't figure out the overstepped boundaries, maybe you need somebody to tell you. And now he was just saying that people are telling him that he overstepped and it's, he wants to throw up. And he, he's like, what should I do? And I'm like, I don't know how to respond to that. I literally do not know how you can become a better person for you. Like, like apologize and don't do it going forward. Yeah. It's not that complicated. I mean, as a person that I... I don't know, man. I'm like, I don't know what to tell you. And then other people are like, you don't need to, to sit. That's like asking somebody if you're racist to every, if, the, if you've ever made a person of color feel uncomfortable. And it's like, you really want them to have to go through with you and reassess every time that you've been racist and made them feel like shit again. It's kind of shitty of you to do that. So there's a lot of interesting conversations going on right now the about all this shit. The culture wars are on. So it's going to be an interesting fallout. And there's a lot more falling out to do, I'm sure. Mm-hmm. On a brighter note, Big Mouth. Have you seen this cartoon? I've you told me it. to watch it, and I loved it, Callie. Now, Especially the Everybody Bleeds episode. Oh, my God. Everybody bleeds. There was a tampon with the face of 
R.E.M.'s Michael Stipe singing, Everybody bleeds sometimes. sometimes. Now this but is my so kind intense. of coming of age. It's like <laughs> such an intense show. Like there's so many emotions. I can't handle it. There's a lot going on. And there's the staff, the voice staff is insane. It's got Nick Kroll, Fred Armisen, Jordan Peele. Who does the ghost of Duke Ellington and That's Freddie wild. Mercury? Yeah. That is so good. Uh, Maya Rudolph plays... The hormone monster. So the kids have, they're going through puberty and they have these hormone monsters that try to get them to, to do things just totally controlled by the monster brain. And Maya Rudolph is the best as this monster. Hello, my precious little ravioli. What are you? I am the hormone monstrous. <laughs> if you're here to tell me how terrible being a woman is, Hush, I'm already... You're on the rise, girl. I am? But you'll have to make some changes, Dumplin'. For instance, what the fuck is this? It's my baseball mitt. Get rid! Hey! Listen to me! So good. And it's so nice to see people, like, addressing the women's puberty and men's puberty with the same kind of level of importance and the same... Like the women get horny too episode where the kids' heads just exploded. It's there's so much going on in it, and then um, oh my god, there was the talking, but the pretty little vagina when they were looking, she was like looking at her vagina. It was like the cutest little precious little thing. Oh my god! And, oh, and then the, with the, how they dealt with the kid wondering if he was gay or not, and then his best friend just kissed him to see, and I was like, oh, that's. Just- best friends i feel like we should point out that big mouth is animated oh yeah on Netflix, that's important so we can explain how all of these things are done that is highly important <laughs> yeah oh and it also has my boyfriend jason manzukas in it who yes. i totally love he's not my boyfriend yet but he will be and jesse klein and jenny slate friends of bust there's so many amazing people in it i also watched the paradise papers the documentary on um a vice documentary on hbo um, which basically just breaks down the investigation. And it was really interesting to see how all these different reporters in different countries all are working together secretly to dig all these files and then to try to figure out what the fuck these files even mean. And it was, you don't really see the fallout of the papers because the papers are just falling out now, but it just leads up to when the article broke. And it was fascinating, I would think. Everyone should watch it. Um, and then the Rolling Stone documentary. Rolling Stone Stories from the Edge on HBO, which is two Did parts. Did you watch both? I watched one? both parts. Nice. Uh, though, of course, the guy that started and founded Rolling Stone is also being accused of sexual harassment. So Double. <laughs> but um, it was really interesting when Anne Leibovitz, the famous photographer, was going through her full, uh, the pictures that she took like of Yoko and uh, John Lennon and how that all came about and like the stories of the, how the photos were came to life. That was so interesting. I just love watching how magazines are supposed to be made. <laughs> <laughs> see what the real side of the story is. And um, there's like so much good archival footage, like about Tina, the Tina and Ike part is amazing. I didn't hate Bruce Springsteen. I usually hate Bruce Springsteen. Um, <laughs> Why? What did Bruce ever do to you? Uh, I was just not into his music and he just seems obnoxious, but he looks charming in this. Okay. <laughs> um, and the Hunter S. Thompson stuff is so awesome where he's going on the campaign trail. And um, he was trying to like swerve the vote to the camp, the candidate that he wanted to win. And so he started this rumor about the guy and then, you know, people were picking it up and he was just telling people there's a rumor about this guy and then when somebody accused him, he was like, I told everybody it was a rumor. I just didn't tell them I started the rumor. <laughs> I love Hunter S. Thompson. I've often, like, you know, wanted him to be around today to comment on the Trump administration. Oh, my God. I know that God. there's plenty of people doing plenty of commenting. But I've, I, I've more than once wondered what Hunter S. Thompson would say about our current political climate. It would be amazing. That's for sure. Let's bring back the ghost of Hunter S. Thompson on Big Mouth. Well, if he didn't blow his brains out, he would be here to tell us. I'm sort of irritated by it. <laughs> Damn. Oh, like it is. That's real talk. Um, and I've been obsessed with Stefan Don. 
Um, she's like Jamaican, British. Um, well, she was Jamaican descent and she grew up in London. And the song 16 Shots is so good. It technically came out last year and it just came under my radar because she came out with a new single this year. Um, but I think I've been thinking about it a lot lately with all these accusations because the the chorus is like... No, about these people trying to fuck her mom up and she's she's just going to shoot them <laughs> it is so good she performed at the mtv emas and she slayed it so hard her um the performance is amazing and she's definitely gonna blow up because she has a track coming out with skepta who's a pretty famous crime producer and she's about to work with drake so we have got to get steflon don before we can't get her all right. You heard it here. I heard it here first. I'm on it. And that has been my journey. Ladies, I would like to tell you what it is that I am watching. Yes. What it is. Numero uno on my list. Number one, like a rocket, is the pilot episode of Love You More on Amazon. Oh, my God. I need that in my face right now. Oh, my God. It stars cabaret legend Bridget Everett. I love her. Uh. And... She plays a, a character named Karen, and she lives in New York City. She lives hard. She has a big personality, and she's out and about making all kinds of interesting mistakes with men. Oh, my God. One of whom, in this pilot episode, has a vast penis, which they are able to show in its entirety because it's Amazon. <gasps> I love a good so dick shot. Just to see the most vast penis I've ever seen in an episodic comedy, you gotta check out the pilot of Love You More. But anyway, that's I like calling a dick well, it vast. Made me depressed. Well, no, it made it's me, vast. Well, it made me depressed about being single. I don't think so. No. But <laughs> the thing that is so fascinating is that she's like a she she drinks and she like checks out the dudes at the bars and she like has this very active social life. But during the day she is a counselor at a group home for young adults with down syndrome. And so like, there's this amazing interplay between her social life and her work life. And like, you just get this real well-rounded sense of her as a person. There's a musical number. So like you, even though it's an episodic comedy, it still showcases her vast abilities as a cabaret performer. And like so delightful to me as well as if it weren't enough to have a a comedy starring Bridget Everett Lonnie Anderson oh, is her roommate ah, in this show what? Lonnie Anderson of WKRP Get in the Cincinnati fuck out of here. fame this is insane looking as incandescently luscious as ever <gasps> i can't even believe that it's been so long since Lonnie Anderson has been in a tv show and it's amazing. i'm really excited to have her in this role as Bridget Everett's uh, roommate. And the very important thing about this show is that if you watch the pilot, you'll see immediately that it's brilliant, feminist, and amazing. But the deal with Amazon is that it's pilot season. There's only just the one episode. You have to go on it. You don't need Amazon Prime to watch it. Anybody can watch it. And then you vote to let them know that you want more. <gasps> and if watching more, we're only going to get more if y'all vote. So Get on it. Vote. Watch it. I promise I you that there. you'll love it. Especially if you want to see a vast dick, but also for other reasons. <laughs> you may recall in a previous episode of Pop-Tarts that it wasn't until very recently that I ever saw Maury. The Maury oh, Kovic yeah. Talk show, where oh, my you God. are the father. You are <laughs> not the father. People are doing praise dancing because they're not the father. Okay. <laughs> so my secret agent lover man, Logan, discovered that our Roku has its own channel called Roku TV. And on Roku TV, there is a world of random shit, including endless streaming episodes of Maury, Geraldo, Jerry Springer, Sally, Jesse, Raphael. Like this shit is on like rotation (gasps) every night in my apartment now. And it's really upsetting slash amazing slash upsetting. (laughs) 
There's oh, a lot man. of wig snatching. There is a <laughs> lot of punches being thrown. There are a lot of people who both are and are not the father. Geraldo is like very concerned about uh, consumers getting defrauded. And and Jerry Springer <laughs> acts like he's like so shocked and upset by the antics on his stage when you know he's not. He's not shocked, he's not surprised, shocked or upset. He loves it. Right. They, and, and Sally Jesse sometimes even takes her red glasses off in concern and looks at <laughs> Do they have Phil Donahue on there? Because he was legendary. You know what? If if they did, I would have said it because I have I felt Phil Donahue feelings in the seventies. I'm not yeah, gonna lie to you about that. But like also he was fairly progressive if I remember correctly. Yeah, I mean he's continues to be married to that girl, Marlo Thomas. Marlo fucking Thomas. Oh. Media feminist Marlo Thomas. So he's no slouch. No. Um, so yeah, if you have Roku TV, let it be known that like all of these shows are just living on there waiting to be explored and waiting to ruin your life and or enhance it. <laughs> on a more somber note, Alias Grace on Netflix, based on the 1996 Margaret Atwood novel of the same name, is amazing. It's a limited series. It's a six episode miniseries. You had me at Margaret Atwood, so there's that. Margaret Atwood is the fucking best. I love that she's such a media boss now because she deserves to be. And it's based on a true story about um, a domestic servant in Canada in the 1840s who was convicted of a double murder. But did she do it? The story, it's, it's a true crime miniseries that really has everything to do with how shitty people treated women in the 1840s and also how shitty women are continually treated. But it's very specific about the shitty treatment of women in the 1840s and how that built up into an inevitable conclusion of violence. True or false, David Cronenberg has a role. True. (gasps) (laughs) Gasp on that. He is such a silver fox. Okay, sorry, go on. (laughs) Yeah. Yeah, buddy. So, um, yeah, it's it's so it's based on the book by Margaret Atwood. It's directed by Mary Heron. It's um, the script was written and produced by Sarah Polly. Mm. Sarah Gadden stars in it. Like we're talking about like a massive like Avengers style super group of women here for this. this. And it's on Netflix and it's amazing. Um, so, yeah. Alias Grace on Netflix. Also on Netflix is season two of Lady Dynamite. Oh my god! I can't wait. I so to... it's good. Maria Bamford wait. is such a weirdo. I love that she is a pug that talks and that his his voice is like Werner Herzog. <laughs> I you know I watched most of it this weekend while I was curled up in bed in a sort of depressive fugue state, and I have to say. One of the things that I love about Maria Bamford is that I think she gives people who have emotional or mental health problems hope that you can be successful and you can find love and you can still be like kind of fucked up and broken, but it's okay. And I also love that like she found love at the end of season one and like that is playing out in season two, but she's still like acting like a mentally ill person in the context of their domestic lives together. And so I'm like, Oh yeah, I feel that like they can, she can act mentally ill in the context of her domestic life and it doesn't actually ruin her relationship. Right. Like everyone, there's a lid for every pot. There's a lid for every pot, Jenny. Yeah. (laughs) I love that part of the show. And I, yeah, there's also um, a certain undercurrent where she sort of offhandedly suggests to her new boyfriend that he tries stand-up comedy and he does this shtick where he literally doesn't say anything <laughs> and he's immediately embraced by the LA comedy community with open arms. <laughs> That's hilarious. Because he's a man. Yeah. Uh, and so I found that to be particularly on point for this current <laughs> uh, entertainment climate. So way to, way to go, Maria Bamford. Also, Anna Gasteyer, I really can't get <gasps> enough of her. And her glasses. Tits to the sky! Tits to the sky. And Bridget Everett. Yeah, that's right. Bridget Everett's in this, too. She's really, she's taking She's over. all over the place. I also, um, I know that, th- I think there's more episodes that are out in the world now, but on Hulu, the most recent first part of season six of big frida bounces back ah! um i finally caught up with that <laughs> and it was really good i i got very caught up in the drama of 
letting go of old dancers and auditioning new dancers. And there was a lot of, you know, like change is very painful. And because of all of Frida's um, legal difficulties, uh, Frida has to do random drug tests. So no more weed. And oh that's my really God. Big, a big issue. That's a no for me, dog. <laughs> um, <laughs> those of you guys out there may or may not know that um, Callie Watts, co-host of this podcast, was me? one of the first people to bring Big Frida to national attention. Yes. yes way back in New York. has a days. friend named Rusty Laser. Oh, yeah. Who is a DJ for Frida and... Through Rusty Laser, we got this massive uh, story on not only Big Frida, but Bounce, New Orleans Bounce. And we were one of the, I would say, Katie probably Red. the first There's national so publication people. to do like a roundup of the scene. And then the New York Times did a huge story in which they called us to fact check because... Uh, <laughs> They found out about it from us. And then I ended up becoming friends with Big Frida, which is oh amazing. God, amazing. I know. She is amazing. I cannot you know, express how awesome she is. I was going through my archives of bus magazines, which I have like e- easily a decade or more. And like I was always impressed by how ahead of the times we've been. You've been because my, you know, I'm sure you're in it to win. You're in the game. But you know what I mean? Like you guys, I mean, you read the, I go back and look at these features and it's like so far ahead of when these things have infiltrated pop culture and you guys are like planting seeds and I just, I'm always just impressed and amazed. I appreciate that. And I I will always say that Callie is our secret weapon in that regard. Well, thank you. She lives (laughs) a year or two ahead of the entire rest of the world. Before we sign off, I want to talk about some live events coming up. Live. That you should mark on your calendars. Uh, First off, December 5th, at Industry City in Sunset Park, Brooklyn. Home which of Bust is Magazine. The home of Bust Magazine. Um, our pals at the listening booth who help us produce this very podcast are putting on a night of stories. And the theme is design disasters. And some of the storytellers involve uh, T. Chang, who's a co-founder of Crave Design. I wonder if anybody ever says, I hear you, T. Chang. <laughs> <laughs> and uh, Aisha Bursell, author of Design the Life You Love, and many others are going to be telling design-based stories in this storytelling event. It's at 7.30 p.m. at in Industry City at The Filament, which is in... Uh, the, the back of the food hall in Industry City. And uh, go to Industry City online to check it out and to get all the details. That's I December will probably 5th. be there. You guys may or may not know that Bust Magazine puts on a slamming holiday event every year called the Bust Holiday Craftacular. And this year, it's going to be bigger than ever before. Like, We're going ham. We've, been, we've done it for about 12 years, and we basically handpick the best artisans of handmade goods and put on like the most amazing craft fair you've ever seen in your life with things that are awesome and nothing that sucks exactly and you can get all of your holiday shopping done like with artisans that you normally would only be able to shop from online you can actually come and see all of their goods live and in person uh in one giant event but this year along with that we're pulling out all the stops It's a two-day event on Saturday and Sunday, December 9th and 10th. And not only will it have a whole slew of designers, but we're also having over 40 crafting and wellness classes, demos, lectures, lectures slash panel discussions from amazing feminists, including Lindy West and Amber Tamblin. And, uh, oh, right, and also from Kristen Soleil, who you may recognize from this podcast, the Witches, Sluts, Feminists author, Kristen Soleil, who was on this podcast, is also going to be lecturing about witches, sluts, and feminists. (laughs) And um, there's also going to be a two-day music festival featuring badass female-fronted bands for two whole days. It's going to be massive. The classes sound insane. There's block printing and watercolor and plant cloning. And then there's also things like guitar picking, palm reading, and hand, hand embroidery at the same time. An intro to BDSM. It's insane. Oh, past life regression. 
laughing yoga CBD clinic. It's it, yeah. it runs the clinic. Uh, runs the clinic. It runs the gamut of so many interesting classes. I wish that I could take all of the classes, but I'll have CBD. to work. <laughs> Sorry. So this this event is going to be definitely the biggest one that Bust has ever put on. It's going to be two full days, and you're going to want to check it out. Again, it's Saturday and Sunday, December 9th and 10th, from 11 a.m. to 7 p.m. at the Brooklyn Expo Center, which is at 79 Franklin Street, Brooklyn, New York. If you want all the info... Oh, you got to buy tickets online for the classes because there's a limited amount of seats, um, so go to bust.com. Slash craftacular. And the tickets are sold there. So grab those up because they're very small amounts and the classes are going to sell out really fast. But admission is free if you want to come in and shop. So shop to your heart's content for free. But if you want to take those amazing classes and go to the lectures and do all that stuff, buy your tickets ahead of time. Yes. And that, my friends... Is what is up. Yeah. <laughs> that is what is up. Thanks, as always, to our producer, Rachel Withers, the greatest Ooh. producer of all. <laughs> yeah. Yeah. Beautiful. And our pal at the listening booth, Terrence Mickey, and, of course, our girl gang at Bust Magazine, which includes the lovely Jenny Miller. Oh. Aww. You can find me on Twitter at Emily Rems. And uh, Jenny, where can people find you on Twitter? Ms. M-S-J-E-N-N-I Miller. And uh, you can find both Callie and I. Uh, you can email us. I'm at emilyrems at bust.com. I'm Callie W at bust.com. And to find out more about Bust, visit us at bust.com, where you can also find out all about our giant event, the Bust Holiday Craftacular. And finally, please rate and review this podcast on iTunes. It really helps us get the word out. We super duper appreciate it. Mm-hmm. Mm-hmm.